Our first reading is taken from the book of Joshua, chapter 5, and it's on page 209 of the Church Bibles. Page 209, it's Joshua, chapter 5, beginning to read at verse 9. Joshua 5, verse 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after that, the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. Then if you'd like to, please stand for the gospel reading, which is taken from Luke chapter 15. So it's on page 990 of the Church Bibles, Luke chapter 15, beginning to read at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. And on to verse 11 now. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. 
Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. May we receive your word, O Lord, in your grace this morning in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The parable of the prodigal son, a sermon in two acts. Act one, the Reverend Hugh Grimes, chaplain of Vienna. Charles Hugh Duffy Grimes was a typical, one might even say ordinary clergyman of his generation. He had been a scholar of Jesus College, Cambridge, where his primary interest had been in English regional history. In an age where clergy were not necessarily expected to hold theological matters as their primary interest, this proved no bar to Grimes, and he ended up being ordained a priest in St. Albans in 1904. Initially, Grimes devoted much of his time to his passion for history, becoming particularly interested in the rather cheery subject of the history of divorce. In 1907, he took a job teaching in Australia, where he was to remain undistinguished for 12 years. During a parish job back in England, he mostly seemed to work on his new hobby, the study of migration. It was for his initially amateur research on this particular area for the church army that he was made a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society in 1924. By now, Grimes, at nearly 50 years old, had grown tired of even cursory forays into English parish life. With this admirably short curriculum vitae, he took the equivalent of an early retirement and became the chaplain to a number of British expatriate communities scattered ac across Europe. From Barcelona to the fashionable resorts of La Havre and Biarritz, Grimes spent the next decade laying his hat across the continent. By 1934, he had arrived in Vienna. Christchurch, the Anglican outpost in the city, was not a particularly grand affair. The tiny chapel could accommodate 150 people at a push. Grimes remained there longer than in his other posts until in 1938, the storm clouds that had been building across Europe finally broke over Charles Hugh Duffy Grimes' quiet sinecure. On 12 March 1938, German forces rolled over the border into Austria. Suddenly, Grimes and his congregation were living under a Nazi regime. Over the four years he'd been serving in Vienna, Grimes had got to know and befriend many members of the Jewish community. Recognizing their panic and wary of the impending travel bans on Jews from Austria, the Gentile Cambridge clergyman began to offer baptism to those who came to him, providing them with a safe ticket out of Nazi-occupied Vienna in the form of a baptismal certificate. 
Spring became summer and the persecution of the Jewish homes and businesses increased. What had been a trickle of a few Jews with links to England became a flood. Grimes began holding several services a day. On 10th July, he baptized and issued certificates for 103 people. On 25 July, he baptized another 229. So the Anglican chaplaincy became a revolving door for Jews desperate to find a loophole in tightening travel restrictions. Grimes, aware of the heightened peril his Jewish neighbors were in, teamed up with the naval attache at the embassy, Captain Thomas Kendrick, and so Christchurch became the hub for counterintelligence in the Austrian capital. Grimes even went so far as to appoint the British secret agent Fred Richter as the church's verger to provide cover for his activities. It was this link that spelled the end for Grimes. He was hastily recalled to London and accused of going beyond his remit, but not before he managed to secure a retired Anglican clergyman, Reverend Fred Collard, to take his place. Collard continued the baptisms, and by August of that year, 1,800 Jews had been issued with certificates. It's the story of somebody who lost all interest in doing anything for God's kingdom during his time as a priest, who was redeemed by doing such wonderful things for such a large community of people in the run-up to World War II. Act Two, The Loving Father. The parable of the prodigal son, or the parable of the two brothers, or the parable of the loving father, as it's called in different translations. This is one of the most memorable stories told by Jesus in the whole of the gospel. Even though it only appears in one of the gospels, Luke, it is such a well-known story, in fact, that it wouldn't surprise me if one or two of you switched off during the reading this morning. Don't worry too much if you did. You won't be the only one or two. I'm sure some of you are also wondering why we're reading about a father on Mothering Sunday. So here's today's lesson in church liturgy. The fourth Sunday of Lent is traditionally called Letari Sunday. Letari is a Latin word that means rejoice. Today's gospel describes the reason for our joy. God's great love for us has been revealed in Jesus. Through his passion, his death, and his resurrection, Christ has reconciled us with God and with one another. We think of God as a father because of the traditions handed down by the Jewish teaching in the times before Jesus. And remember, Jesus was Jewish, and so were the first Christians. Anyway, that's a different Sunday. The point is that in today's society, we can equally view God as father or mother or both. I personally don't believe God is or needs to be gender specific. So on to the parable. This is one of those stories that even non-Christians tend to know in one form or another. Usually using the most famous of its monikers, the prodigal son, a name given to it by a translator in the early years of the church who has long since faded from our memory, a name given when the bold headings were added to the books of the Bible somewhere along the way. That's why this story has multiple names. 
none of them specifically designated by Jesus, but all of them capturing the nature of God's forgiveness and God's unshakable love, even in the face of rudeness and disrespect on our part. Let's start with this prodigal idea. A lot of redemption stories are directly drawn from the idea of the prodigal in film, television, novels, popular music. The story I read you from this book, A Field Guide to the English Clergy, that chapter is titled Prodigal Sons. The last verse of the Irish folk song, The Wild Rover, proclaims, I'll go home to my parents, confess what I've done, and I'll ask them to pardon their prodigal son. And when they've caressed me as oft times before, I never will play the Wild Rover no more. Disney's classic film, The Lion King, features a son who runs away after the death of his father and goes to live a Hakuna Matata existence, far from the kingdom, which is his birthright to rule. Hakuna Matata, what a wonderful phrase. It means no worries for the rest of your days. It's all problem-free philosophy. You get the point. <laughs> Simba eventually returns home and challenges his evil uncle to the kingdom. And there's even this grippingly gospel of Mark baptism of Jesus moment where Simba has a vision of his father in the shimmery sky above who proclaims, Remember who you are. You are my son and the one true king. Even just a few weeks ago, Fox Television in America announced its plans for a new crime drama series called Prodigal Son. Based off the little I've read about it, though, I've got the feeling this is going to have very little at all to do with any sort of gospel message. But even the title to this parable one that was created by a Bible translator, remember. It's become a part of pop culture to the point that we talk about all sorts of prodigal sons in our daily world. In the world of 2019, we crave redemption stories, and we're rife with examples of both real and fictional circumstances where someone leaves home, screws everything up, and is welcomed back with love, compassion, and open arms. The prodigal son is a touching illustration, not only because of the father's love, but because the son comes back regretful and totally apologetic. He's ready to lower himself to become a servant. And the loving father will have no part of that. He runs to the son. He welcomes him back with open arms. And he finds his return to be a cause for celebration. I remember just over five years ago when Jose Mourinho returned to Chelsea. There was great feasting and dancing from supporters eager to see him return to the posh southern borough with the glorious self-believed specialness that helped him to produce consecutive runs as champions in the previous decade. Fans were willing to forget he had left under fishy circumstances five years earlier and allowed him back at Stamford Bridge with a clean slate. Well, a trophy and some bitter disappointment later, they ran him out of town with pitchforks. This isn't my favorite redemption story, and it's not even in the top five, 
but it's the story I share because of the Sky Sports headline on 10th June, 2013. The Return of the Prodigal Son. An appropriation of a well-known story to an enigmatic professional football coach coming back to the Premier League. I doubt that the prodigal son in Jesus' parable ever got run out of town for underperforming expectations. I can all but guarantee from the evidence in the Bible that God would never run us out for any reason. Thankfully, there's a lot more to life than football. If I've just upset you, please breathe. <laughs> Personally, I quite like the name some of the other translations gave it. The parable of the loving father. I think it's more to the point. We can call it the parable of the loving parent if we want. It places the loving welcome home at the center of the story from the very beginning. We already know the father loves the prodigal son before he demands money, before he runs off and spends it all, before he lives in his own private shame and then comes crawling back. Because unlike in my real world example of what Sky Sports called a prodigal return, Jesus' example not only features a son repentant and ready to come home and even subordinate himself to become a servant, but the father is also thrilled to have his blundering son back home. He doesn't ignore the fishy circumstances that led to the son leaving. He even refers to the son as being dead before his return later in the story. He's accepting his son back with all of the heartache, all of the letdown of that departure still in his memory, knowing full well that the son has come back ready to change. And the father is excited. So excited, he wants to have a big party to celebrate. Okay, just so we're all clear, I've skipped over the usual likening of God to father and us being the screw-up prodigal son to this point because that's, that's just the logical jump a lot of people go for from the onset of this passage. But cliches happen for a reason, so let's go with that idea now. God the Father gets excited. Do we ever pause to think that God gets excited? Or that something we do can excite God? Or that our confession can excite God? Or that God gets excited knowing full well when we are ready to change and grow. The young son has acted terribly. He's taken his inheritance with his father still alive and has run away to a life of hedonism and wastefulness, actually ending off up worse off than he started back at home. He ends up as someone else's servant and is envying the scraps the pigs eat. And he returns home ready to be treated as he deserves for this wastefulness and disrespect. But the father isn't having any part of it. Bring him in. Dress him in the best robe and give him a ring and some sandals and let's have a party. 
less social, more introverted people in the room right now might be thinking, no thanks. But remember, God knows your heart. And maybe your welcome would be more like, here's a comfy seat outside in the shade and a cup of tea and a nice book. Such undying faithful love is exemplary of what I'm sure this parable means to convey. We are all that prodigal son or daughter at some point in our life. Maybe even at multiple times, we can crack on doing our own thing, making mischief of one kind and another. We leave God behind, either intentionally or not, and get into a space where we feel far from God. But when we're ready, all of us, we return and God welcomes us back in, open arms, fully embraced, fully rejoiced over, every one of us. That's what confession and absolution are all about, what forgiveness is, what God's love looks like. Let's remember now that the younger son, in fact, has an older brother, an older brother who stuck around in the years that the prodigal was away, squandering his inheritance. The older brother's furious when he discovers that his brother has returned home to such fanfare. But I've been here the whole time, Dad. I've helped and I've grafted over the years, and you've never done any of this for me. The moment he's home, it's all fireworks and candy floss around here. Like a good and loving father would be, the father is very rational and compassionate in dealing with this general grumpiness from the older son. You are always with me, and this is always yours. It always has been. But look, your brother's back. He was basically dead to us, and now he's alive again. I'm sure the resurrection message wouldn't have been lost on Luke's readers. Jesus was dead and now is alive. God is a father. We are grumpy sons and daughters. Given Jesus never did a runner with God's spoils, but it's not a like-for-like -like story, so as much it's a reminder about the resurrection in the parable and the potential for even the most desperate and openly distant to be brought back. We can really plug ourselves into any role in the story and we will be all three of these characters at different points in our life. It's a reminder for us of God's love, that love which will always be ours, even when we are at our most distant even when we're making mischief of one kind or another, even when the one complaining that someone else, when we are the ones complaining that someone else who totally doesn't deserve things that they're getting are getting it better than us. God loves us at our most distant, our most selfish, and our most grumpy, just as much as God loves us at our most jubilant, our most selfless, and our most joyful, even when we feel a million miles away, envying the pig scraps, we're only a short journey from a royal reconciling and a fantastic party, or a comfy seat outside in the shade, a cup of tea, and a nice book.